to. Um, oh, yeah, Children's Church. It's right here at the top of my page. Yes, go ahead. Children's Church meets today. As you depart, go ahead and begin turning in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, um, verses 1 to 8. I uh, made a little adjustment. It was uh, in your bulletin. It was just, behold, he is coming, Revelation 1, 1 to 8. Today, it's, it's now, behold, he is coming, part 1. So that part 2 will come next week. We're not going to get as far as I had hoped to get um, in our beginning study here in Revelation. Um, you know, today, though, we begin um, what will prove to be a long journey, studying the final book of the Bible. The Revelation. The Revelation. And I imagine the reactions uh, to hearing that this will be the next book that I preach through were, were mixed or are mixed amongst you. Some may be excited to hear this, and others may have sighed with disappointment or concern. Because uh, some of you love the book of Revelation, and others of you may not be so excited about it, finding it a very difficult book to comprehend. You know, Revelation, more than any other book in all the Bible, confuses people. It's been interpreted with a, a wider variety of perspectives than any other biblical writing. It doesn't seem that anyone agrees on how it ought to be understood or interpreted. Respected Bible teachers who agree on many, many core doctrinal issues are often wildly divergent when it comes to their understanding of Revelation. And knowing all of this humbles me as I approach this, uh, it's a daunting task really, this daunting task of teaching through Revelation. You know, I've done Malachi, that's four chapters. Done Second Thessalonians, that's like four chap- three chapters. You know, uh, Colossians, we just finished that one up. Um, very simple and small compared to Revelation, right? This is huge. This is 22 chapters. Um, how can I presume to understand it adequately to teach it to others? Being the, that I'm young, I'm inexperienced. So let me just give you, um, permit, let me have permission from you, first of all, just for, uh, by way of introduction, to uh, time to provide a few reasons why I've selected this book and why I believe it's important for us to be here right now. Um, many of you have probably heard this story before, if you've been in any of my eschatology Sunday schools that I've taught. Um, but uh, the, I want to tell you the story of how I became acquainted with Revelation, okay? Um, if you've heard this story, just bear with me. It's, it's a great story. You're going to love it hearing it again. So um, when I was a kid... I was sick one Sunday evening, and when I was a kid, we, we went to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night to the church that I grew up in. And I was sick one Sunday night, and my dad stayed home with me to take care of me, and my mom went with my sister to church. And if you're a local, you remember that back in the day, Fox 19 used to have the 8 o'clock movie or the 9 o'clock movie. Do you guys recall this, the 8 o'clock movie and the 9 o'clock it was like movies that were, you know, edited for TV, so a lot of the cuss words and bad stuff was taken out. Well, one Sunday night when I was sick at home, the 8 o'clock movie uh, was The Omen. <laughs> Have you guys ever seen that movie? I hope none of you have seen that movie, honestly. I'm not, it's not a plug for The Omen. Don't go watch The Omen because I said this. But when I watched this movie, and it was basically a movie about this little kid who's born to unknown parents and is adopted uh, by these, you know, sort of political dignitaries. And this kid is evil. And uh, he ends up being the Antichrist, right? And uh, the movie, which is creepy as all get out, ends um, with this creepy little kid's face. And then it goes dark. And then the next thing that appears on the screen is a quote from Revelation 13, which mentions the number of the beast, which is 666, right? This is the passage of scripture in Revelation that most people are familiar with when you go there. This is the first time I became acquainted with Revelation. And I, after that, I was like, what is that? And my dad goes, yeah, that's actually a verse in the Bible. And so um, that point on, there was this eerie appeal to the book. Um, it, it, I, I couldn't avoid it. It was sort of like the horror video game phenomenon for kids today. There's, I don't know if your parents know this, but, but your kids play horror video games. They're games that are meant to like scare them, Right? 
Well, this was sort of what this movie did for me. It, it, it freaked me out, but it caused me to become interested in the Bible and Revelation. And so at church, uh, there on out, uh, when the preacher was preaching, I would not be paying attention to what he was saying. I was actually reading the book of Revelation, and I would do this pretty often um, because it was so inter- interesting to me. Now, that was when I was young. As I got a little, little older, uh, the, my interest in the Bible kind of wore off, um, until uh, I became a Christian uh, later on. As I progressed into junior high and senior high, I became a Christian uh, my freshman year in high school. And I found there, grew in me, when I became a Christian, a deep interest in the Bible. So I would read it all the time. I became a voracious reader of the Bible. Um, But when I was an early Christian, I more enjoyed the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and the Epistles, the letters to the Romans and the Galatians. I, I, I loved reading those. That part of the New Testament. And again, I read voraciously. Um, And at this period, I may have only gone back to Revelation to peruse it a little bit here and there. So um, I slowly expanded to reading more in the Old Testament. And I originally gravitated more toward the historical, the narrative sections of the Old Testament because they were more simple to understand. And along the way, I developed an interest in the Proverbs and in the Psalms. Um, But I became so interested in the Bible uh, and in studying it that I decided to go to Bible college. So getting into Bible college, I began to realize that there was a whole lot about the Bible uh, that I didn't know or understand yet. Um, In fact, I began to see that there were whole swaths of the scriptures that totally confused me. And uh, so I had a tendency to avoid those confusing parts. And lo and behold, those sections were primarily the prophetic scriptures. They were the hardest to understand. Some of them were very long, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Um, I would try to read through these in my quiet times, and I'd get confused or bored, so I wouldn't get through them, at least not quickly. It would take a long time, and so I would lose the whole sense of the broad context. So by the time I was a junior in college, um, this started to bother me a lot because I knew that I wanted to teach the Bible. Um, and I was teaching the Bible. I was a young life leader. I worked with youth group at, a time, at that time. Um, it bothered me that I felt so ill-equipped to understand and explain such a large portion of the scriptures. So I made a concerted effort in my quiet times over the next months to focus on the hard parts. I read through the minor prophets, and the minor prophets are great. They're short. You can read through them quickly, and you can get the gist of the, the whole sense of the letter in each of those cases when you read them Um, in one sitting. But I read through Jeremiah. I read through Ezekiel. I read through Daniel. I read through Isaiah. And after reading through them, I didn't sense that I really had a better understanding or sense that uh, I was any more equipped to teach or answer questions about them. But I gained something valuable in reading through those intensively that I didn't quite understand until a little bit later. And this is where Revelation comes back into purview. That same sense of inadequacy to understand and teach plagued me when it came to Revelation, as it did those other Old Testament prophetic books. It just didn't make sense. And after reading all of those Old Testament prophets in the recent past, I decided to go back to Revelation again. But this time I approached it with a couple of important differences. So here's what they were. The first thing is, I approached it with this difference. I realized that I had always read the Revelation with some preconceived idea that I had begun to question. See, the church I grew up in and the Bible college that I went to, whenever Revelation was mentioned or taught, there was always a preface provided. That Revelation was an example of apocalyptic literature. Have you guys heard that word before, that phrase, apocalyptic literature? Well, this was... Every time it was brought up, it was, it was couched in or described in this sense. You've got to understand it as apocalyptic literature. Okay, great. What's that mean? Well, it under, I understood this to mean a couple of things. First, apocalyptic literature emphasizes spiritual realities, and it downplays the physical. Okay, this is one of the things apocalyptic literature did. It employs, another thing, it employs rich symbolism and imagery, That's difficult to understand. Therefore, it can't and shouldn't be understood literally. This is what I was taught. 
So I came to understand that these preconceived ideas that I had about interpreting this book had been imposed upon me by teachers. And they weren't bad teachers. They were good people, godly people. But some of these views about the nature of this text were imposed upon me by these teachers. And as I read through the Bible, I couldn't find anywhere that the text of the Bible itself ever imposed those preconceived ideas upon me as a reader. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? So, I embarked upon reading Revelation again, but this time with two important differences. And this was the first difference. I consciously decided to read it to the best of my ability without my preconceived ideas about it and to simply take it at face value the way I would read anything else, right? In other words, a literal and grammatical way. The second important difference was I set aside an extended period of time to read Revelation in its full context. I sat down one afternoon, it was up in Cleveland before we had any kids. Mandy was out shopping with her mom. And so I had a few hours one afternoon on a Saturday and I sat down and I read Revelation from beginning to end in one sitting. And that was massively helpful. If you've not done that, do that. Even better, do it after you've read Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Um, it would be in Zechariah. Yes, another one. Thank you, Kevin. Very good. Um, so upon finishing it, I realized two things. That there was, the first thing I realized was there was actually an important third difference, and a third difference in the way that I had read it this time. And it was, I read Revelation with a fresh familiarity of the Old Testament prophets. And I found that Revelation is literally dripping with references to the Old Testament prophets. Not quotations, but there are allusions to the Old Testament prophets all over the place. The second important thing that, I, that happened when I, after I finished reading it that I realized was that I found that Re- Revelation made sense to me for the first time. Not necessarily every single detail, but the overall message of Revelation was clear. It was much clearer than it had ever been before. And so because of that, that afternoon, I worshiped the Lord because of this fresh understanding. And I thanked him for his word. And I thanked him for opening my eyes to the glory and the wonder of the revelation. So I guess you could say my first reason for selecting revelation is my own love for and excitement about this book. It's really the first book that ever intrigued me in the Bible. And it still intrigues me to this day. And I hope that in some way my love for revelation and excitement about its message will rub off on all of you as we go through this this, this book, because it's probably going to take us two years or more to get through this. Um, so as I thought through how to introduce this book um, to all of you and to explain my rationale for selecting this book to teach from, I, I struggled with the format of all of this. My first thought was to spend a chunk of time with some introductory remarks and then to dive into the text separately. And I've done a little bit of that. Um, but as I began to write things down, I decided that I wanted to pretty quickly jump right into the text and let it introduce itself to us and the important introductory items um, I wanted to share with you. I think they'll present themselves as we go through the text. So our path forward today is to begin by reading verses 1 to 8. Verses 1 to 8 can roughly be divided into three main parts, which is verses 1 to 3 is the revelation introduced, if you're taking notes. Verses 4 to 6 is the revelation audience and greeting. And verses 7 to 8 is the revelation theme. So we will only get through the first section, verses 1 to 3 today. Next week will be part 2 and we'll finish the first 8 verses then. So let me read it and then we'll pray. Verses 1 to 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, 
for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Father in heaven, I come before you this morning um, just so thankful, Lord God, for your goodness to us. So thankful, Lord, for your goodness to us in giving us a book like Revelation. So thankful to you, Lord Jesus, that you are a God who communicates, a God who reveals, a God who wants us to know truth, who wants us to know the way home, who wants us to know the Savior who loves us and died for us. Lord, I thank you that you are this God. And I thank you, Lord, for our time together this morning in this passage of Scripture. And Lord, I pray that your Spirit would guide me as I share the things that, that I've, I've studied and thought, thoughts that I've pondered. Lord, I pray, Jesus, that your Spirit would empower the preaching of your Word. And Lord Jesus, that you would work in the hearts and minds of these people who hear it. Change us, Lord Jesus, to be more like you. In your name we pray, amen. So verses 1 to 3, the revelation introduced. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who, he, who heard or hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So verse 1, the first word of this book is the Greek word apocalypsis, which is where we get our English word apocalypse. And when we think of this word, we often think in terms of the end of the world type of images, right? We think of movies that are dystopian, end of civilization, zombie apocalypse type movie genres. And as you read further uh, into Revelation, it becomes apparent that this word's association with these types of images makes sense. Because Revelation describes the most uh, grisly and violent destruction and plagues of anywhere in the Bible. It describes the violent end of the world as we know it. But that's not what the word really means, apocalypse. It simply means a revealing. Hence the title, the revelation. It conveys uncovering something that has been hidden. That's the simple meaning. Something that was concealed is now revealed. This revelation, according to verse 1, has a path of transmission. It is Jesus Christ's revelation that was given to him by God the Father. Jesus then sends that revelation that he got from the Father to his bondservant, John, by means of a messenger angel. So this is not John's revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The text says that Jesus sent this revelation. And that there's another verb in the Greek about how this was transmitted that does not come to light in a lot of modern English translations. Unless you have the New American Standard Bible or the King James, um, in the New American Standard, it's that word communicated. In the King James, it's the word that's translated signified. Signified. And this is an important word to keep in mind when we're interpreting Revelation. Because as we go through this book, you're going to see that there are signs and there are symbols all over the place. How we should interpret those when we encounter them is the question that we ask. How do we interpret these signs and symbols? Well, I will let you know just from the outset. 
and I already hinted at this, I think, uh, when I, when, uh, you know, when I, in, in my introduction, when we encounter signs and symbols in the text, I'm going to do my best to consistently let the immediate context of Revelation explain them. And it often does just that. Um, and if the immediate context does not explain the symbols or the signs, then we're going to look at the broader biblical context, often the Old Testament prophets. These will explain them for us when we look at, at those other passages. I'm getting a little bit of a popping here. So let's go on, though, to see what is being revealed to us in this apocalypse. So verse 1 tells us that God the Father gave Jesus this revelation to show his bondservants, and that's all followers of Jesus, which includes us today, to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. The things which must soon take place. So let that sink in for just a second. Revelation is introduced to us as unveiling the future. Those who read it, read the future. Now, we may have a tendency to take this for granted if we've grown familiar with the Bible. Um, As a kid, I heard this taught um, often about the Bible. I I would hear about fulfilled prophecy in general, but I I didn't take the time to look into specifics until uh, I got a bit older. Uh, This past weekend at the youth retreat, I was actually talking to the guys during our cabin time, and one of the boys mentioned something um, that... Uh, I thought was very pertinent here, he indicated how easy it was for homeschoolers to take the Bible for granted and to not appreciate it or engage with it because it seems like another textbook to them that they use during their schoolwork. And as a homeschool parent, I I sense this myself, um, that my kids might have a tendency to take the Bible for granted because of their familiarity with it. But the Bible is so unique It's so amazing that we sometimes forget how unique and amazing it is. And this is not just a phenomenon of homeschool kids. It's widespread amongst youth. It's widespread amongst Christians in churches of all ages. In some ways, we've lost the sense of the wondrous miracle that is the Bible in a pervasive sense in our day and age. And honestly, this is a large part of why recently I went through this series that we did with the youth group on, on Wednesday night. Uh, called Blown Away. Um, I wanted to take the youth step by step through some of the most amazing and mind-blowing sections of the Old Testament that exhibit the Bible's ability to accurately predict the future. You realize you're holding a book in your hands that in numerous occasions has accurately predicted the future, and it does so with specificity. It's really an amazing thing. Daniel chapter 2, verses 28 to 29 says... And this is in the context of Daniel interpreting a dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. And he says this to him, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. Amazing. Amazing to think about. Amos 3 verse 7 says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Isaiah 46 verses 8 to 10 says, Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things Long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not, or things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. There's no other book in all the world that contains fulfilled prophecy the way the scriptures do. None. The Bible on a myriad of occasions, you can go ahead and bring that up, Jonathan. The Bible on a myriad of occasions has accurately predicted the future. Let me change out my transmitter here real quick because it is popping like crazy.
There you go. HR popping stuff. Is there anything? Let me wiggle around a little bit. No pops? No cracks? Like a Rice Krispie pastor? All right. Um, <laughs> verse 2. Let's move on to verse 2. Okay. Verse 2 tells us about this John, right? John is the first human who received this revelation and he spread it around. The text tells us that John testified. And this is the Greek word that we get our English word martyr from. And it just means to bear witness. Because in in so many cases, uh, in the early church, people were put to death simply because they bore witness to Jesus, right? They uh, refused to recant their testimony and their faith in Jesus. And so this word eventually took on the alternative meaning of describing one who died for their faith, a martyr. John testified, though, it says, to two things, according to this verse, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, earlier I mentioned to you my preconceived ideas that I had brought to the text that sometimes frustrated me when I read through Revelation. And we all have a degree of pre-understanding that we bring to anything, anything that we read, not just the Bible. Um, By way of analogy, um, I submit to you that our pre-understandings are a little bit like lenses that we put in front of our eyes to clarify things. Now, I'm a nearsighted person, so when I take these off, I can see your face and I can see if you're looking at me, um, but I can't see like your expression at all. It's uh, when I put these on though, it's very clear. Oh, Angie's smiling at me. Mike is like, what is Eric talking about? You know, it took my glasses to be put on for me to, to be, to, to have a clearer perspective of what I was looking at. So I think our, under, our pre-understandings, our preconceived ideas are in some ways like lenses that we put in front of our eyes to help us clarify things. So I don't think we realize often that we need lenses um, because we get used to things looking fuzzy and blurry. If you recall before you ever had glasses, some of you may not be able to remember that, but I can. I can remember that. I was 18 when I first got glasses. And if I recall, it was because my mom noticed that I was squinting a lot when I was looking at things. You know, that's probably how a lot of you got your glasses. And so we made an appointment to the eye doctor, and sure enough, I needed glasses to see things far away. Um, And when I put those new glasses on, I was surprised at how much more clearly I could see things. So what's that have to do with verse 2? Well, this. I propose to you that John in verse 2 gives us two lenses that we should look through to get a clearer understanding of what Revelation is saying. Okay, does that make sense? Lens number one, the Word of God. The Old Testament specifically. I think specifically that's what John would have been referring to here. Um, And as I told you earlier, and it will become ever more obvious as we get deeper into this book. Revelation is literally dripping with allusions to the Old Testament, probably more than any single book in the New Testament. It's like a sponge that's soaked with water, right? Um, You push anywhere on Revelation, and the Old Testament just bubbles out of it. The more we consider Revelation in light of the Old Testament and what it has to say, the more it will make sense to us. Does that make sense so far? So the first lens, the word of God, will inform our interpretive method. Okay, let me explain what I mean there. Should we interpret revelation literally or symbolically? Well, when we consider the prophecies of the Old Testament, we see a pattern of literal fulfillment. Even in the other examples of apocalyptic literature, like Daniel, for instance, Daniel is filled with vivid imagery. It is filled with symbolism, just like Revelation. It relates in a lot of these symbols and visions, it relates to empires that would emerge in world history. And while the prophecies were given through symbols and these uh, visions and dreams that Daniel and kings had, the explanation was that the symbols pointed to literal empires. Literal empires that did emerge in history. 
And they fell in history. And history, you know, outside of the Bible, bears out the correctness of the Bible in those prophecies. They were fulfilled literally. So I could give you many other examples um, that I could provide, but I think it suffices just real quickly to illustrate why I will interpret and explain the visions of Revelation in as literal and straightforward a way as possible as we progress through the text. That brings us to our second lens. The second lens here is the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we could easily move past this phrase without appreciating how important it is. You see, John not only was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus and to the miracles that Jesus performed and the things that he taught, but he also had the verbal and personal testimony of Jesus Christ himself. And he described to John how he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. Let me explain this. If you look with me at Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27, the setting here is the road to Emmaus. You recall this passage. Right after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, two disciples were walking along the road, and the resurrected Jesus joined them. And he began discussing with them the things that had been going on around and in Jerusalem, the things related to Jesus' arrest and his beating and his trial and his death and his resurrection. They were discussing these things amongst themselves and Jesus himself interjected. And these two disciples were perplexed. They were confused and and they were sad, remember, because they couldn't understand how their Messiah could come to meet such a tragic end. And so Jesus, after hearing them, he speaks to them and he says the following. He says, O foolish men, And slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, this is the important part, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus himself did that. And their problem was not that they didn't understand what the prophecy said. Their problem was they were slow to believe it. But Jesus gave personal testimony as to how he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies about his first coming. So the first disciples and the apostles, they were not left to their own devices or their own clever ability to draw connections between the prophecies and their fulfillments. Jesus told them specifically how the first prophecies, first coming prophecies were fulfilled. Does that make sense? That was the testimony of Jesus. And in my opinion, this is very instructive for us in our own understanding of Revelation and its prophecies regarding the second coming. How should we view their fulfillment? And there are four four schools of thought related to these prophecies in Revelation and how they're fulfilled. And next week, just a little plug, during Sunday school, uh, we're going to talk more in depth about each of the four views, okay? A little advertisement. So come to Sunday school next week, and we'll learn a little more about the four views. I'm just going to briefly cover them right now, super quick, just a sentence each. So the first school of thought believes that most of the prophecies of Revelation were fulfilled by A.D. 70, not A.D. 70, A.D., Anno Domino, in the year of our Lord the year 70, at the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. This view is, this school of thought is called the preterist school of thought. Another school of thought believes that most of the prophecies have been fulfilled during the unfolding of church history since the apostolic age ended. And that's called the the historicist school. A third one believes that that most of the prophecies are fulfilled sort of cyclically in a spiritual or idealistic sense all throughout church history, even today. And that school of thought is called the idealist school of thought. And finally, the fourth one believes that most of the prophecies of Revelation are yet to be fulfilled in the future, at the end of time, before and when Christ returns. And this school of thought is is described as futurist, right? So, real quick synopsis of those. 
Just to let you know, the view I will propose to you throughout my teaching of this book is the futurist one. And the reason for this goes back to the importance of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay, let me explain. You see, those who believe that Revelation was fulfilled by 70 AD do not have the direct testimony of Jesus to confirm this fulfillment. Those who believe that Revelation was fulfilled historically as the ages of the church unfolded, they do not have the direct testimony of Jesus to confirm those fulfillments. They have to, put, they have to connect those things themselves. Those who believe in an idealistic fulfillment of Revelation, as far as I can tell, do not have in the scripture a permission to read the prophecies in this non-literal way. They do not have the direct testimony of Jesus to confirm that school of thinking. Because we do not have the testimony of Jesus confirming specifically the fulfillment of the prophecies in this book, I believe that it's the wisest and most careful approach to understanding these prophecies, to have their fulfillment in the future still. And I await Christ's return to grant that final testimony of their fulfillment. Does that make sense? Good. Okay. All right. So I must tell you, though, um, when beginning to study this, I did not expect to find such a depth uh, in verse 2. So these two lenses, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, are extremely important for our understanding of Revelation. And we tend to rely on different lenses a lot of times. Uh, Our preconceived ideas. They may or may not be good preconceived ideas. And we are hesitant to set those things aside to see if they may actually be clouding our perception of what Revelation means. So let me explain what I mean. We may be wed to certain theological perspectives that, unbeknownst to us, act as lenses that may cloud our ability to gain a proper understanding of Revelation. So I challenge you as we go through Revelation, and you do some reading and study of your own, let the Old Testament, Word of God, and the New Testament, Testimony of Jesus, be your primary lenses for understanding, okay? Don't be afraid to set aside your dispensational preconceptions, which that would be me. I need to work on setting those aside sometimes as I study this, right? Don't be afraid to set aside your reformed preconceptions or your covenant theology preconceptions or your Baptist or your Methodist or your Presbyterian or your Lutheran or Churches of Christ or Catholic background instructions, Don't let your affinity for special teachers like John MacArthur or John Piper or Al Mohler or Ken Ham or Greg Beal or Walvert or Moo, you know, all these different guys. David Jeremiah, I like a lot of these guys. Um, Don't let them, though, be the final authority that determines your understanding. And I don't intend anything disparaging about any of those denominations or any of those people. I really don't. Don't even let me or Pastor John, or Pastor Eddie be your most relied upon lens. Let the word of God and the testimony of Jesus be the lenses for your understanding of revelation, okay? And I'll do my best to aid you in this, but I will do this imperfectly at best. So um, I have still a lot to learn myself, Um, but it's time to move on to verse three. All right, verse three is as far as we're going to get today. So um, I originally hoped to get through verse 8, but we'll have to finish that up next week, Lord willing. This verse, probably more than any other thing I've mentioned thus far, gives the reason for why it's appropriate for us to be here and why I want to be here in Revelation, studying this book together. You see, Revelation is unique amongst all the other books in the Bible in that it promises blessing to all who read it, to all who hear it, and to all who take heed to what it says. Right? What's pictured here is an early first century church where one person would stand up and read it out loud and then the rest of the congregation would hear it. And they would read the whole thing and hear the whole thing in one sitting. And they would understand um, via that. They didn't have their own copy that they could take home oftentimes. That's kind of what's being pictured here by read, hear, and heed. So I want God's blessing. On me. I want his blessing for you. 
I want his blessing for our congregation. I really want God's blessing. And I think what better place to be than here in Revelation where that blessing is promised. Harry Ironside uh, wrote a book called Lectures on the Book of Revelation. And he said the following about this verse. And I I like what he says, so I'm going to read it. The quote begins, It's certainly cause for deep regret that so many Christians, that to so many Christians, the book of Revelation seems to be what God never intended it to be, a sealed book. The book of Daniel was to be sealed till the time of the end. But of Revelation it's written, Do not seal the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. It's clearly evident that this portion of the Holy Scripture was given for our instruction and our edification, but thousands of the Lord's people permit themselves to be robbed of blessing by ignoring it. Significantly enough, it is the one book of the Bible which begins and ends with a blessing pronounced on those who read and keep what is written therein. Surely God did not mean to mock us by promising a blessing on all who keep what they cannot hope to understand. It is only unbelief that would so reason. And I agree with Ironside's sentiment here. If God intends for us to heed what we read, then he must be expecting us to be able to understand what he has communicated to us. It's difficult, yeah. But we can understand it. With that said it must be acknowledged that it takes work and it takes careful attention to understand it. The sense of that word heed in verse 3 means to attend to carefully or to guard by keeping your eye on something, right? I'm looking at you. Not anybody in particular. I'm just illustrating. No, you, Tom Brown. Look, look, sorry. Uh, That's what it means, to guard by keeping your eye upon it. So it'll be good for me as your pastor and teacher and you as learners to let our attention be drawn to this book for an extended period of time. I think there will be great blessing in doing so for all of us. So another important phrase that I want to draw your attention to in this verse, in verse 3, it's this, the words of the prophecy. So this book is a prophecy. Just as it said in verse 1, As a prophetic writing, it makes the claim that it's foretelling the future. I firmly believe that when we read Revelation in this way, as prophecy with fulfillment that's still in the future, we receive the most blessing intended for us as readers and students of this book. And I say this in light of the the final important phrase to mention in this verse. That final important phrase is for the time is near. The reason we are urged to read and hear and heed the words of this prophecy and revelation is because of that last phrase in verse 3. For the time is near. In verse 1, we were told that the things of the revelation would soon take place. Both of these phrases that appear in chapter 1 also appear at the very end of Revelation in chapter 22, verses 6 and 10. And I ask the question, in what sense... Could it be said by Jesus through John that the things in the book of Revelation were to be near in time or soon to take place? After all, it's been more than 1,900 years since John received this message. And we have yet to see anything like a literal fulfillment of the things described in this book, at least as far as I can understand. And this is a primary argument of those who interpret most of Revelation as having already been fulfilled in the first century. They argue that such a warning would have been totally out of line and dishonest if God did not intend to bring these things about nearly 2,000 years or more had transpired since those things. It would have been out of character, out of line for God to, 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 uh, to say that they're near or that they're soon to take place if that much time was going to be between the prophecy and its fulfillment. So thus, they go on to make the case using some other scriptures as well, as well as Revelation, up through chapters 18 or 19, they think that they can safely be understood as having already taken place. And I think their argument deserves some attention. And come Sunday school next week, we can give it more attention, okay? I'm not going to give it any more right now. But others like myself 
who view interpret, who interpret revelation as still future have argued that these terms can also be understood as not necessarily be referring to the proximity uh, to the prophecy, but as referring to the, the pace at which the prophecy will unfold. In other words, once the prophecies start to become fulfilled, they'll wrap up very quickly. And you can argue this sense of the meaning uh, just by looking at Revelation, because it all unfolds very quickly in Revelation. It seems even with an initial reading that the events seem to follow quickly one right after another. Still others who believe in a future fulfillment interpret the, the nearness or the soonness as being viewed from God's eternal perspective. And this is fair, because we're told elsewhere that a day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So there's no contradiction here, they say. The time is soon or near from God's perspective. Now my own personal view on this argument, and why I think a future fulfillment makes sense here when we talk about the time is near and soon to take place. I interpret these things basically in keeping with the overall sense of virtually all of the New Testament writings. Because all of the New Testament writings have this sense of imminence, that Christ's return is imminent. In other words, it could happen at any time. And you could cite many examples in the New Testament of this. Um, None have been given even Jesus, when he was on this earth, the exact time of the end. And this was deliberate on God's part to instill in his followers the constant need to be ready for that climactic event, that moment when Jesus comes back in judgment. And it would seem that many of the New Testament authors, John included, believed that they would live to see Jesus return visibly, Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, 42, when he was teaching his disciples things concerning his second coming, he said this, be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. So if I could give one word to describe the mood of the book of Revelation, at least in terms of how one often feels emotionally when they read it, it would be the word ominous. Ominous. You see, the things described in this book are frightening. And they're set by the author uh, right from the outset as being just on the horizon, as imminent, soon, near. Now, as ominous as the book is, there's glorious comfort in the final four or five chapters of Revelation. And there's also interspersed throughout these glorious scenes describing joy and worship around the throne in heaven. This is all throughout the book. But the scenes of judgment that will befall the earth are some of the scariest things that you'll ever read. And the book begins and it ends with the sober words, for the time is near. That's ominous. Verse 3 of chapter 1 promises a blessing to those who read, hear, and heed the Revelation prophecy. Revelation ends in chapter 22, verses 18 to 19, with the warning of a curse upon those who add to or take away from the prophecies of this book. It says this, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. I interpret this prophecy of revelation in as literal a sense as possible and believing its fulfillment to be yet future with the possibility of its beginning fulfillments to be at any time. The beginning of these fulfilled prophecies could come at any time. And I do this in large part because of the sense of imminence that verses one to three convey. If by teaching a fulfillment that's already passed, or one, whether it's in the first century or in the ages of the church thereafter, or by teaching a a spiritual or a non-literal interpretation, then I fear that I would diminish the sense of imminence that Jesus wants us to feel when we read and heed this prophecy. 
And I don't want in any way to blunt or take away that sharp edge of imminence that seems so clear in Revelation. The time is near. It's sooner today than it was when it was first given to the bond servant John. And if that's the case, then we do well to heed the things written in Revelation. And I would be remiss if I didn't alert you to the fact that I skipped an important phrase from verse 2. That We're going to close with that. You see, as we read and heed the words of Revelation, one of the things it communicated to us in verse 2 that we ought to heed was the example of John. You see, John was a faithful servant who testified. He testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. And it says he did this even to all that he saw. Even to all that he saw. And I got to confess to you that reading that phrase kind of puts me to shame. Because my own example is a poor one when I consider John's. The sense of the imminence of the return of Jesus, his Savior, was so great in his life that he testified even to all that he saw. How many people go by me in a day and I don't testify to Jesus, to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ? How are we doing with all of this? Will we heed that example? And in light of the near coming of the things predicted in Revelation, begin to testify to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus? Will you and me, will we open our hearts, will we open our mouths to those in our circles of influence to share with them the glorious, gracious news of Jesus who loves them and longs to forgive them before it's too late because he's coming back? The time is near. Let me pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I am, I am humbled by what you revealed to John in the revelation, and I am humbled by his example, Lord, and I ask for your forgiveness for all the times, Lord Jesus, when I let conversations go by and I don't testify to your goodness in my life that I don't share my testimony of what you've done in my life and I don't share the testimony of what the scriptures teach me about how you came to love us, to die for us, to rise again, all this to save us. And Lord Jesus, I do this knowing that I have a limited window of time. The time is near and it's nearer now than it ever has been. So Lord Jesus, help us to redeem the time that we do have. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.